All right, if you have a Bible, uh, a hard copy, or on your phone, you go ahead and open it up. Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to finish that chapter this morning with verses 32 down to the last verse of the chapter, which is verse 39. And as you get situated, um, I want to kind of invite you to think about a time in your life, and it would be the time that you uh, kind of discovered what was maybe like your first real passion as a child, or you might have been uh, a little bit older than a child maybe, but maybe as a young person, you really discovered art and it was just any sort of creative pursuit. Maybe you were someone who really liked to draw or to paint, and so you just burned through art supplies at your house. Like every available surface was a place that was just available to create. Or maybe you really liked to write, and you were uh, always just making up little stories or illustrating those stories, or or, um, everything for you was like a creative sort of imaginative uh, space that was happening in your head. It could have been sports. And so you really kind of fell in love with basketball. And there you were in the driveway, in the rain, in the snow, in the dark, shooting baskets on the hoop by the light on the garage door there. And every time it went out, you would have to go over and like reactivate the motion sensitivity so that you could get time for like six or seven more shots before you had to do it again. Maybe it was music. Um, You got to the age at elementary school where you could like play the violin or you got into band or you got a guitar as a gift. And there would be times where your fingers would like start to hurt from pressing on the strings of that violin or from playing that riff on the guitar over and over and over again. But you just kind of muscled through those things for the joy of playing that instrument. Maybe for you, it was like dance and the kitchen floor was like the perfect hardwood surface that allowed you to pirouette like to max speed and capacity. And you would go out into public and find those kinds of places and you would just dance like wherever you were. And there was some vision alongside that. Maybe as a real young child, you couldn't have articulated it perfectly, but there was something inside of you that sensed that you could do that thing, whatever your passion was, on like the biggest scale possible. Like, I'm going to be a ballerina on stage and thousands of people are going to be watching me. I'm going to not be shooting these free throws in my driveway. It's going to be in an arena full of people who are screaming uh, at me to either miss or they're like chanting my name because I'm MVP, right? Or this little guitar riff that I I've been struggling to figure out, well, one day I'm going to be a rock star and I'm going to come out on stage and I'm going to totally shred this thing. There was some picture of that that existed in your mind that created the kind of passionate beginning where you were willing to play outside in the freezing cold in order to practice or work through that sheet of music one more time, even though your fingers felt like they were about to explode. And then something happened. Now, it could be that your vision of the end point just was no longer compelling. I spent most of my childhood wanting to be a broadcast journalist. I got into college. I took one broadcast journalism class, and suddenly, like, being the anchor on the news no longer seemed very exciting. I stood up from the middle of that class, and I walked, and I changed my major. Like, I was done with that. It could be that reality crashed in at some point, and you realized that your aspirations to be an NBA basketball player had a significant cap, and that cap was the fact that you only grew to 5'5". And suddenly, it just didn't seem possible 
for you to be able to do that on the largest stage. Maybe it was not necessarily that like the end point became less compelling or your talent level was a limiting factor, but you just grew up a little bit and you thought, I need to get a job and like pay the bills. And the burdens and sort of the duties of adulthood smashed down your passion for whatever that thing was. It got hard to persist. You practiced less, you played less, you stopped dancing in the Chick-fil-A lobby, right? Because what will people think of me? I'm 30 now, I can't do that anymore, right? Hold that thing in mind, both the beginning of that, the passion that existed at the beginning of it, and also whatever it was that kind of caused that to fizzle out. Because we're going to come back to that a couple of times over the course of looking at this passage. So if you've got Hebrews open, start in verse 32 with me. I'm going to read through the end of the chapter. Remember the earlier days when after you had been enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to taunts and afflictions, and at other times you were companions with those who were treated that way. For you sympathized with the prisoners and accepted with joy the confiscation of your, prop, of your possessions because you know that you yourselves have a better and enduring possession. So don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you need endurance, so that after you have done God's will, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a little while, the coming one will come and not delay, but my righteous one will live by faith. And if he draws back, I have no pleasure in him. But we are not those who draw back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and are saved. Here's the end point this morning. A clear and compelling vision of the end inspires passionate beginnings and passionate persistence. There's a thread that runs through the second half of Hebrews chapter 10. Everything goes from theological to practical uh, in verse 19. And it's this big therefore kind of statement in light of all of the like theological beauties of who Jesus is and the fact that he's better and he's the fulfillment of all these Old Testament things. In light of all of that, verse 22 is the first command, draw near. By faith in Jesus, draw near to the Lord. Like one of those priests who could walk into the holiest of holies and stand in the presence of God. You draw near by faith in Jesus. And then there's this big warning. It's the third warning passage in the book of Hebrews. It starts in verse 26 and it's what happens if you don't? What happens if instead of drawing near, you deny? You deny the person of Christ. You deny the work of Christ on the cross. You deny the spirit of Christ and his work in an individual's life. What happens then? Well, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's what that warning passage says. Then there's this encouragement. Remember the early days. And it culminates, it ends in verse 39. And it's this identity statement. We're not those who draw back. We are not those who deny and are destroyed, but those who have faith and are saved. There are three big warning passages in the book of Hebrews, but Hebrews is a book of encouragement. And after each one of those warnings, there's an encouragement like this. Yes, persistence is necessary, but then it's like the author of Hebrews kind of looks into the eyes of his readers and says, we're not those who draw back. That's not who we are. We are those who have faith. We draw near instead of drawing back. We don't deny we have faith and thus we are saved. Today we're gonna see kind of how that connection happens from draw near, don't deny, we're not those who draw back. How do we bridge the gap there? So 
Here's where it starts. Look at verses 32 through 34 again. Remember the early days when after you had been enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to taunts and afflictions, and at other times you were companions with those who were treated this way. For you sympathized with the prisoners and accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions. Passionate beginnings are fueled by a compelling end. The author of Hebrews wants his readers, this church likely in Rome, full of Jewish heritage individuals, he wants them to remember when they came to faith. Remember the early days when you were enlightened. We see that word enlightened, we we immediately think of something intellectual, like you came to understand or you came to know. The, The most literal translation there is, remember the early days when you were lit ablaze. Like the light of Christ came into you and it lit you on fire. You went from dead to alive, from old to new, to cold and dark, to lit ablaze. Remember those early days. The context of that is that this first century church in Rome likely came to be, or at least really started to uh, grow and gain some momentum under the emperor, uh, sorry, under the emperor Claudius, I almost said Claudistine, which is not a name, under the emperor Claudius, who was a persecutor of Christians. And so the author says, remember those days, you were lit ablaze and there was persecution happening. And look at how they responded. Sometimes you were publicly taunted. That would be verbal. You were made fun of. Something was said about the fact that you were a Christian. Other times you were afflicted. That would have been physical. You were harmed. You were beaten because of your faith. Other times you weren't the one who experienced either one of those things. You weren't taunted. You weren't afflicted. But when one of your sisters or brothers in Christ was, you stood by them like a companion. You didn't abandon them. You didn't retreat and try to hide thinking that could also happen to me. You went and you stood next to them because you're brothers and sisters in Christ. You sympathized with the prisoners. You Literally, you had compassion for them. It's the same thing as Jesus can sympathize with us in our weaknesses. It's the exact same word. You sympathized with those who were in prison. To be in prison at this time is not like, you know, being in prison today where there's state funding and you get three square meals and all of those kinds of things. If you were put in prison in the first century, your very survival was built on the fact that someone would come visit you. They would bring you food. In the winter, they would bring you clothing to keep you warm. It's actually one of the ways that persecution spread. You'd find one Christian who you knew was a follower of Jesus, you'd throw him in jail, and then you'd wait to see who shows up. And it was highly likely that when they professed faith, because of the danger of persecution, their family drew back from them, but other Christians would come. The author says, in your early days, when you had just been lit ablaze, and one of your brothers or sisters in Christ got thrown into prison, you had compassion. You went to them. You cared for them. Paul, uh, the last letter that Paul writes is 2 Timothy, and he sends it to Timothy, who was his disciple that he had raised up in the faith and had launched out into ministry. And Paul is in prison when he writes this letter. And there's this real personal sort of chunk at the very end where Paul says, he's, he's begging for Timothy to come visit him. He says, when I was tried and put in prison, everyone abandoned me. But when you come, bring my cloak, it's cold. Bring my parchments, 
I want to continue to be able to write letters. Presumably, Timothy went. It's that sort of sympathy that the author of Hebrews says, when you were first lit ablaze, that's who you were. You showed up into that place despite the fact that you could have been the next one thrown into prison. And when your, your possessions were confiscated, whether that means there was like a raid at your home and people came in and they stole stuff out of your house or your home was burnt to the ground or you got extorted for money, uh, which is probably most likely that they were taxed extra because they were Christians, with joy, you accepted that confiscation. In Acts chapter five, the early church is being persecuted and the apostles are pulled in before the Sanhedrin, who is like the ruling Jewish body. And they're put on trial there and things get kind of heated. In the middle of that trial, one of the leaders of that body stands up. His name is Gamaliel. And he says, we should not pursue this any longer because if this thing, Christianity, is truly of God, we'll just find ourselves fighting against God. And that's a losing battle. If it's not of God, it's just going to disappear. And in Acts 5.41, we're told that when the apostles were released, they left praising God and rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer because of the name of Christ. That sort of mentality, the author of Hebrews says, when you were first lit ablaze, that's who you were. And then there's the big because statement. Look at the end of verse 34. Because you know, you yourselves have a better and enduring possession. Why would they be willing to suffer through all of that? Why would they take the taunts and the physical affliction, visit those in prison at risk for, of their own imprisonment? Why would they be joyful about the confiscation of their stuff? Because they know that there's something better that endures. They know that the one who has saved them was better than even the very worst that the world could throw at them. Call us what you want. The God of the universe calls us his children. That's better and enduring. Harm us if you want to. We're going to be glorified one day and all of our wounds and tears are going to be healed and wiped away. That's better and enduring. You can't intimidate us from standing with our sisters and brothers in Christ because they truly are our sisters and brothers and they will be for all of eternity. It's better and enduring. We're showing up to that prison because Jesus said that doing so was the same as visiting him. And even if you toss us in there, it's fine because it's temporary. We have been set free and one day we will be completely set free from the bondage and the pain and the brokenness of sin in this world. That's better and enduring. Take our stuff. We've got better possessions waiting for us that cannot be taken. Peter, in 1 Peter says that there's this inheritance waiting that is kept for you, undefiled, cannot be taken away. That's better and enduring. When Martin Luther was commenting on this section of Hebrews, he made the following statement. He, that's Jesus, smooths the exceedingly rough road for those who rely on Christ through faith are carried on the shoulders of an ever steady savior. The road might get really rough and it might be really hard and it might involve putting myself at risk of imprisonment, but my savior is steady and I'm carried on his shoulders. And that is better, and it is enduring. You cannot take that away from us. That view of the future gave them incredible passion at their beginning. Go back to whatever that first passion was for you. 
the thought of having your artwork hanging not on the refrigerator anymore, but like on the walls of a museum, that thought created a passion inside of you. The thought of stepping out onto stage and performing or acting in front of a large number of people, right? It was no longer in your living room, but it was on a big stage. That was compelling. That end point created a passion. The author of Hebrews says, remember those earlier days? They were fueled by the fact that you know you have a better and enduring possession, one that cannot be taken from you. And that passionate beginning was fueled by a compelling end. Look at verses 35 to 39, because then he moves into the present. So don't throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you need endurance now, today, so that after you have done God's will, you may receive what was promised. And then there's a quotation that comes out of Habakkuk chapter two. For yet in a very little while, the coming one will come and not delay, but my righteous one will live by faith. And if he draws back, I have no pleasure in him. But we are not those who draw back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and are saved. Not only was your passionate beginning fueled by a compelling end, but your passionate persistence is fueled by a compelling end. What's the call here? Don't throw away your confidence. You need endurance today. Don't throw away your confidence. Well, your, your confidence in what? Your confidence that like you are just tough enough to endure? No, not that. Your confidence that in general, your faith is so wonderful that it's just all on its own. You're the one that could muster up the persistence necessary for life in a broken world, and particularly in the face of persecution? No, it's not that. Your confidence that you're the one that's ultimately responsible for everything that may happen to you in the days, of he- days ahead, it's not that either. It's the confidence that you know you have something better and lasting and enduring. Your confidence that Jesus made the way for that, that Jesus has ushered you into it, that Jesus has secured all the glorious ends of eternity for you, that Jesus is coming back to bring all of that into reality. That's what Hebrews has been all about. That Jesus is better. That it's him and it's him alone. That he's the one who's secured for you your salvation as well as your eternity. And he's also the one that sustains you from the day you're saved to the day you go home to be with him. See what's given is the means by which that flame that was lit ablaze in you is continued to be stoked throughout a lifetime. That quotation in, uh, from Habakkuk chapter two, Habakkuk is an Old Testament prophet. He's one of the minor prophets, but this statement was actually not something that Habakkuk was to make uh, like publicly in his ministry to the people of Israel. It's a statement that God made to Habakkuk specifically. In the middle of his being kind of worn down and tired in his role as a prophet, The Lord said to Habakkuk, in a very little while, the coming one will come and not delay, but my righteous one will live by faith. Now for Habakkuk, on the front end of Jesus, the coming one would come. The savior would be born. He is coming one day. The author of Hebrews repurposes that on the other side of the cross because the coming one will come again in glory and in power. And just as the righteous one would live by faith looking forward to the day of Christ's first coming, now the righteous one will live by faith awaiting his second return. It's still the end that is compelling. The thing that would 
give you the persistence necessary to persevere in your faith is a compelling vision of the end. All three warning passages in the book of Hebrews are about persistence. Hold on. Hang on in your faith. And it's not that persistence is the means by which you are saved. Persistence is the evidence that you have been saved. This afternoon, if your house were to catch on fire and you were to be trapped inside, someone from your family gets out and calls 911. The fire department arrives and you're still trapped inside and a firefighter comes in and pulls you out of that burning building. Every day after having been saved, you don't have to live in order to be saved. Every day after that, the fact that you are alive is evidence that you have been saved. So it is with your persistence. It's not the thing that's going to save you. It's the evidence that you have been saved. That's what's given again here. We're not those who draw back and are destroyed. We're those who have faith, looking forward to this compelling end of the coming one who will come and not delay. We live in the here and now on a rough road in a broken world in a sinful uh, place, looking forward to the day that the coming one will come and not delay. And by faith, we persist in the gap. Revisit the opening illustration. At some point, your image of the end was no longer compelling or it felt like you reached the peak of the cap of your talent, ability, or, or whatever the case might be. And so your persistence started to wane. When our circumstances are difficult, we need to get the end back in front of our eyes. When life in a broken world becomes wearying and draining, we need to redirect our heart to the one who has secured the end for us and will one day certainly deliver it. I had a friend who posted a quote on social media earlier this week that uh, was just an encouragement. Start with eternity and work backwards. That's the call here. Remember your early days when you knew you had a better and an enduring possession. You had the end point in front of your eyes, eternity, and it allowed you to endure all sorts of hardship. You need endurance now. Start with eternity and work backwards. Be continually compelled by that end point and it will give you the passion to persist in the here and now. And then there's that big closing identity encouragement. It's like the author says, I know you. You're not those who draw back. You're those who have faith and therefore will be saved. A clear and compelling vision of the end inspires passionate beginnings and passionate persistence. It can be difficult to take a passage like this and apply it today. The reason being that persecution is a challenging thing for us to wrap our mind around in uh, the U.S., in a Western uh, culture. Likely, the worst thing that any one of us would face as a result of our faith would be maybe like the verbal sort of taunting that we see here. But even by the standards of persecution historically and in the world today, that's very mild here. Sure, someone might disagree with you on whether or not Jesus is the means to salvation. Someone might disagree with you about what the Bible has to say, but that doesn't become threatening in our culture. 
it usually just arrives at the point where two people agree to disagree and walk different directions or log out of the comment section. The exclusivity of Christ is what Hebrews is all about. Jesus is the only means by which we are saved. He's the only one sufficient to bring us salvation. He's the only one who could fulfill all of God's holy standards and usher sinful humanity into the presence of a holy God. When we think of persecution, we can get kind of grandiose visions in our mind. That persecution would be like the moment where someone walks into a place with a gun and says, I want all the Christians to stand up with the understanding that I'm going to shoot you. And we have our moment of triumph where we slide our chair back from our desk. We say, I'm a Christian and I'm not ashamed of it. And I would stand up in that moment and I would defend the exclusivity of Christ with my life. That's kind of the vision we get. Now, there are places in the world where that's daily reality. There have been parts of historical Christianity where that is true daily reality. The kind of persistence that exists in this culture, though, is something that's more like, how are you going to string together thousands of days of loving and serving people who don't make it easy to love and serve them? How are you going to string together thousands of days of walking out your own sanctification in a world and in a culture that's set up for brokenness? How are you going to live out thousands of days from the day you're saved until the day you're taken to glory walking like Jesus? That's the kind of persistence that exists in our culture. I want to tell you a couple of stories. They both come from the 1500s in England, which was the middle of the Reformation. The first is about a man named John Rogers. Starting in 1555, the Church of England was literally uh, set on fire. Over a four-year period, 280 Christians were burned at the stake because of their belief in the simplicity and the necessity of the exclusivity of Christ for salvation. Much of the reason for that was because the Bible was translated into English by a man named John Rogers. And for the very first time, people had the ability to read the words of Scripture for themselves rather than merely listening to what was told to them. And the result was something completely transformational in England. John Rogers was educated at Cambridge, and then he became a Catholic priest. And along the way, he became disillusioned with the Catholic Church because of the discrepancies he saw between the clear teachings of Scripture and the often confusing doctrines of the Church. What he saw as legalistic additions to the simplicity of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And he wanted other people to be able to see with clarity what it was that Scripture taught. So he set about translating the Bible into English. After some time living and pastoring in Germany, he returned to England in 1548 with his wife and his eight children. Around that time, King Edward died and his half-sister Mary appointed herself the queen. Mary was a staunch supporter of the Catholic Church and was willing to defend it at all costs. Rogers, similarly, who was pastoring in a small parish in England, was firm in his Protestant belief and was willing to defend that at all costs. That salvation was a work of God's grace held out to humanity through Christ alone, received by faith alone. As it turned out, Rogers was appointed to preach shortly after Mary's coronation. He stood up and he boldly proclaimed, that faith in Jesus and faith in Jesus alone is the means by which a person is saved. The result was that that was his last sermon. He was promptly placed under arrest and thrown in prison. He lived in prison for over a year and a half in cruel conditions. By the time he entered prison, Rogers had 10 children and his wife was pregnant with their 11th. 
in January of 1555, he was given three different examinations or interviews where he had the chance to recant on his belief. He held firm. The entirety of his year and a half in prison, he had asked for opportunities to see his family and to speak with his wife. He was denied those each time. He missed the birth and the first year of his 11th child's life. On the day of his execution, he pleaded one last time for the opportunity to speak with his wife and was denied. Instead, he was led outside right into the shadow of the church where he had been pastoring, where thousands of people were gathered to see him burned at the stake. From that stake, in the sea of people, he saw his wife holding his child, whom he'd never met before, standing next to his 10 other children. He was given one last chance to recant, to which he replied, that which I have preached, I believe to the core of my being, and I will seal with my blood. As the spot where he was standing was lit on fire and the fire began to consume him, the thousands of people that were gathered there erupted into cheers. Not out of an excitement for the fact that John Rogers was dying, but because they were so compelled by seeing someone willing to die for what he believed. As a result of that, this English translation of the Bible sold widely and broadly. And what it did was it set off a string of Protestant martyrdom in England. One of those who followed in the wake of John Rogers was a man named Rollins White. He was a fisherman in England during the Reformation. He could not read, but he had heard about this Bible and the preaching of John Rogers, and he wanted to know what it was all about. So his family bought one book, the Bible, and they had their son taught how to read so that every night after dinner, they could sit down and listen to their son read the words of Scripture. It was through that that Rollins White came to faith. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And when his faith became public, he was condemned to die by the Catholic Church for being a heretic. While he was being led to the stake where he was to be burned, Catholic authorities had his family positioned right alongside the road. And seeing them on his way to die, he began to weep, but continued walking. Once there, and tied to the stake, a Catholic priest was brought out who began to teach about the various Catholic Catholic doctrines which White, who was just a a common man who could not even read or write on his own, denied based on the scripture he had heard his son read. And when given a last chance to recant, Rollins White cried out from the stake, prove to me by scripture the doctrines which you claim to be true, and I will prove to you by scripture that they are utterly false. History records that his legs caught fire so quickly and were consumed by the flames that he fell over and was burned within a matter of minutes. We can picture modern day martyrs men and women, standing in the face of extreme persecution and oppression, all built on the idea that Jesus would be an exclusive means to salvation. According to Open Doors, which is an organization that tracks Christian persecution around the world, the countries where persecution is currently the stiffest are North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, Pakistan, and Sudan. We see or hear of the kinds of persecutions that take place in those countries, and we think to ourselves, of course I would stand for the exclusivity of Jesus. Of course, if I had to face that sort of fate, I would be willing to stake my identity on Christ. But reality is, we make those kinds of proclamations in our minds or out loud, knowing we probably never will. And it's easy to say something that boldly when we know that the chances that we actually face it are extremely slim. And so let me probe a little bit as we close. 
the barrier to entry for these Christians that received the letter of Hebrews, the barrier for entry into faith was very high. It could cost you everything you had. Your family would likely ostracize you. You might be thrown in prison. Your stuff might be confiscated. You might be physically harmed. And if you were convinced enough to step over that barrier, most of the internal stuff that the American church struggles with was probably going to take care of itself. Notice that the author of Hebrews is not begging his readers to spend some time reading the Bible. Notice that the author of Hebrews is not telling his readers, remember when you first became a Christian and were like willing to pray? Remember when you first became a Christian and you were willing to show up to church or you were willing to share the gospel with someone? No, he's saying, remember when you first became a Christian, you were lit ablaze by the gospel and you were literally willing to risk your life for this. Much of what the American church struggles with when it comes to faith in Jesus is because the bar to entry in America is so low that we need not do any counting of the cost in order to step over the threshold. We do more cost counting when it comes to the public sharing of our political beliefs or the selection of our sports teams than we do when it comes to what might it cost us to follow Jesus. And the things that we have to persist in are often minor inconveniences rather than true persecutions. And yet it can be hard. Following Jesus in a broken world is difficult. In the U.S., we don't really have to reckon with whether or not we are really convinced at our core that Jesus is better. We live in a space that still more or less accepts that that's probably true. We don't have to really count the cost. Is it Christ above all other things for my salvation, for my eternal happiness, for my momentary comfort, for my temporary contentedness, for my ultimate joy in life? If we're going to passionately live like Jesus, we have to have full confidence in the exclusivity of Jesus and what he secured for us. And so long as there's any confusion about that in our hearts, the outward working of our faith will always be watery and diluted and uncompelling to a broken world. If you're not convinced at your deepest level of being that Jesus truly is better than all other things, the passion to persist in a broken world will be very burdensome. If you want to persist in a life of passionate faith, you need to be rock solid certain to the core of your being that Jesus truly is better, that he's the means to your salvation. He's the means by which you've been guaranteed and secured all the glorious realities of eternity, but also the means by which your current happiness and joy hinges. I cannot make that decision for you. Your family cannot make that decision for you. The church as a collective entity cannot make that decision for you. You cannot make that decision for your children. We can encourage one another. Hebrews 10 tells us to do that. We can be present with one another to give each other the reminders. Hebrews chapter 10 tells us to do that. But you have to make the decision for yourself. 
and if this local church is going to have impact in this community, if the American church is going to continue to have witness in this nation and to the ends of the earth, and if individual Christians are going to continue to be bold in the proclamation of the gospel, it will be because we are certain that Jesus is better. We are certain that it is him and him alone who's not only saved us and not only secured eternity for us, but also holds within him all of the happiness and joy that we could possibly desire in this life. That kind of confidence is what creates meaningful activity within the walls of the church and far beyond the walls of the church. It's that kind of confidence that sustains passionate persistence in the face of resistance and persecution, but also passionate persistence in the midst of the mundanity of suburban life. I want to end with an illustration. Uh, when my wife and I started dating, she lived in California and I was here in Kansas City. And there's a two-hour time difference there. And sometimes, most of the time, Melody was not uh, particularly aware of that two-hour time difference. It was a summer. I just started coaching cross-country and we had 6 a.m. cross-country practices. And Melody at that time in her life was uh, like completely a night owl. And so her preferred telephone talking time was like 10.30 p.m. to like 1 a.m. California time, which meant that that was like midnight to like 2 a.m. here. Now, pretty much from the moment that we started dating, I had a compelling end in mind. I wanted to marry this girl. And so the passion of that uh, made it so that three hours of sleep seemed good enough. I would talk on the phone and we could make that work. And I was working toward a compelling end. And this was all sacrifice that was worth it in order to achieve that. Now today, if Melody went on like an extended trip to California and she called me at midnight like, could we do this at 8 p.m. tomorrow? 8 p.m. my time, preferably. But if she said, no, I need, to, I need to talk right now. Well, since pretty much the moment I met her, I wanted to spend every day of my life with her. And I still want to. And the picture of that end is compelling enough that in that moment, I would say, yeah, let's go ahead and talk now. It's two in the morning, but I've committed to spending my life with you. And that vision of growing old together and loving and serving each other is so compelling that it makes a 2 a.m. phone call seem like not a big deal. If we're going to be people who proclaim passionately and persist passionately in the proclamation of the gospel, the end has got to be compelling. And we need to remind ourselves of it frequently. The coming one will come and he won't delay. And he's bringing back with him all the glories that he secured for us on the cross. And we're going to experience them forever. And the road might be rough from now until then, but he is ever steady and he carries us on his shoulders. Amen. And so we can proclaim, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. And we can mean it to the very depth of our being. Let's stand up and sing that together.